As has been mentioned, during this month of Advent, prior to Christmas Day and the fulfillment of the ages, we have looked at the joyful expectation of the various characters in the stories found in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. We have met Mary and wondered about her joyful expectation and fulfillment as she treasured and pondered the things of the coming of the Son, not only into the world but into her lives. The shepherds, as they beheld and looked and wondered and worshipped and spread the news of the King of Kings. The magi, as they followed the star, as they came to the place where he was, and as they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so we've looked also even at the perspective of Herod, as he wondered what this rival would mean to him in the coming of Jesus. This morning we shift our perspective a bit from earth to heaven, from heaven to earth. What was in Jesus' mind when he decided to come? We don't know for fully, but we get some insight in a few passages of Scripture. But before we come to the main one, let me read to you how Paul interprets this incarnation and how the Gospels lay it out for us. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 1 Corinthians 8, 9. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Galatians 4, 4. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1, 15. And finally, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews 2. And we read, too, that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus came and endured the cross and suffered the shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father. So we know that there was joyful expectation on both sides. God's people looking forward to his coming and Jesus anticipating the day when he would fulfill the covenant he made with his Father to be our Redeemer. And so he came with joy in his heart, knowing full well what lay ahead. I think the most insight that we may get from what might have been in his mind at the time comes from Philippians chapter 2. What was Jesus thinking? What was the substance of his anticipation and his joy? We begin in verse 5, 6. Who be, well, verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So it's a, this is attributed to our Lord Jesus Christ by his word who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, 
being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May we pray. Lord Jesus, fill us with your perspective this day and that of the Father as we anticipate the day when we shall see you face to face and we shall hear from your own lips the glorious grace that you have expressed to us by coming this day. Be glorified, we pray, as we look into your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the Christmas story from the perspective of heaven. This is the supernatural view of him looking down upon us. From the viewpoint of the Father and the Son, this opens a window into the mind of God himself and gives us an idea of what he wants from us. And there is a punchline here. There is a bottom line. There is an application. We're not just speculating about the thoughts of the Lord, but Paul makes a very pungent application in the, in, in the end of the passage. First, the son's perspective, verse 6 through 9. He was in very nature God, but did not in consider equality with God something to be grasped. What we have here in this passage is a divine parabola of ascent, descent, and ascent. Down he comes. Down he comes with purpose. And then he was exalted, as we shall see. He did not consider equality with something to be with God something to be grasped. So here he is at the top, in the highest place, the right hand of the Father, the f- eternal Son of God, never having been apart from him for a moment, even in any way. He now takes on the form of a human and comes down to earth. He did not consider that position something to be grasped, something to be clung to, something to be held on to at all costs. He was entering into a tremendous sacrifice, but he did it willingly. He let go of his prerogatives, and he took on the form. Who was in, he was in the form of God. He took on the form of a servant, verse 7. He made himself nothing and took on the very nature of a servant being made or being found in human likeness. He's not just coming to earth to be king. He's coming to earth to serve. Jesus says himself, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. We see this when he washed the disciples' feet. He who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords takes off his outer garments and washes the feet of his children. Jesus, the Son of God, did not hold tightly and insist on his prerogatives as God and Prince of Peace. He did not say, I will never allow myself to experience anything except what is is appropriate to me as the very Son of God. He took on inappropriateness. He suffered unfairly. He came empty-handed into this world, not with the angels, not with the host of heaven, 
not with the armies described in Revelation, but by himself. And in so doing, the phrase is, he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself. Rather than cease to be God, he reveals the deepest truth about himself in this action. He gave. Not grasping, but emptying. Being found in human form, he humbled himself and even unto death on a cross gave himself for us. He had a plan. And he reveals to us that in his essence, in his heart of hearts, he desires to give. Grace is his greatest gift through his Son, but it is the desire of God to continue to give to his people. He did not come reluctantly. He did not come regretfully. He came willingly. For the joy that was set before him did he come. And not just to be humbled in the form of human nature, but to suffer death, even death on a cross, the most horrible, tortuous way of dying that could be devised in that day. He came and walked into it. And when it says in Luke that Jesus sent his face like a flint toward Jerusalem, he's quoting Isaiah 50 and pointing the tremendous willfulness with which Jesus is pursuing this purpose. Nothing's going to stop him. The devil isn't going to stop him. Judas isn't going to stop him. The disciples' pleadings are not going to stop him. The indifference of Pilate is not going to stop him. He is going to proceed toward the fulfillment of his purposes. Nothing's going to stop him because he wants to do this. We might have taken any one of those as enough of an excuse and said, well, if Pilate can't decide, well, I don't, I'll stop right here. You make up your mind, Pilate, you let me know. Or he might have said, look, if, if, if I can't get you, Peter, to stop denying me, what's the point of all this thing? I'll just take that as an excuse and I'll go back home where I came from. But he overcomes all those things because his purpose is to complete the promises that he made to his father, that they made to each other about redemption of his people. And now the Father, in verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess. The Son humbled himself, and the Father lifts him up. The Father had to let him go, and this was part of the agreement I will go, said the son, and the son left and came and died. But the son had to let him go. The father had to let him go. The father had to relinquish him and say, okay. And on the cross, utterly abandon him and consider him derelict and discarded. What father loves like that? What father is capable of such mercy and grace as that? And then the work being finished, he raises him to the highest place. The parabola comes down, the parabola returns back up to heaven. 
He gives him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess. A marvelous reward for our Savior. And it may have been, as some would speculate, it may have been for the Father's praises that he did it all. To he, just to have his Father say, well done. This is my Son whom I love. And to have him exalted to that place at his right hand, which is above every name, that every knee should bow. We don't know all of his motivations, but we know this. He came with joy. He came because he wanted to. He came sacrificing and surrendering, and he is exalted by his Father. But now our response. Therefore, my dear friends, verse 12, as you have obeyed always, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Let these things work within you. Let the love of the Father and the, and the giving the, the grace of the Son work within you so that he might have his purpose and so that it might be said of you as he begins this passage, do nothing out of selfish vain, ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He came to accomplish our redemption. He came to teach us what to do. And the whole of the law can be subsumed under, the, at least the second part of it, under this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Pray for them. Forgive them. Overlook their faults. Wait on them. Serve them. Consider them more highly than you do yourself. This is the example and the teaching of Jesus in our redemption. He didn't have to come but he joyously anticipated coming for our benefit and blessing. This Christmas Day, let us rejoice that we not only have such a sacrificing Savior, but we also have a commission that we would think more highly of others than we do of ourselves. Christmas is a time in which our culture forces us inward. What do I want? What will make me happy? What must occur in order for me to have a good holiday? We're constantly being challenged with those questions. And Jesus says, Look not to your own interests, but to the interests also of others. That's what he did. And he calls us to walk in his steps. Let us pray. It is astonishing to us, O Lord, that you would come in such a manner and form and become like us, and enter into this sinful, cursed world, so filthy with sin and de deceit and scheming and destruction. You would willingly come, yes, indeed, with joy, to be our Redeemer, 
Thank you. And thank you that your joyful expectation was realized when you did come at Christmas to Bethlehem in Judea so long ago. This Christmas Day, we rejoice that you loved us and we are stunned by the, the calling that we have to look to the interests of others, to think more highly of them than we do of ourselves. This we cannot do without your help and grace, without your spirit and power, and without reminding us of your example in coming as our Redeemer. So fill us with your spirit and your power that we might indeed look more to the interests of others than to ourselves. And in so doing, you will have accomplished an astonishing work in our cold and dead sinful hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.